0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event. It's the latest in our living change season, where we're sharing our platform with the practitioners, policy shapers, problem solvers, who are finding new ways to tackle local and global challenges, and to make change happen. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk today to Baroness Manoush Shafiq. Manoush Shafiq is Director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Born in Egypt, she emigrated as a child to the USA, later moving to the UK for postgraduate studies in economics. At 36, she became the youngest ever Vice President of the World Bank and has since held positions as Permanent Secretary of the UK's Department for International Development, Deputy Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, and Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. In these roles, she's worked on major policy upheavals across the globe from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the Arab Spring to the 2008 financial crash, the Eurozone crisis, and of course now the pandemic. So there are a few wiser, more experienced public thinkers to turn to in this latest moment of global crisis, as we hopefully start to emerge from the pandemic and deal with its profound social and economic aftershocks. Manoush joins us today to talk about her new book, What We Owe Each Other, which offers a hopeful and practical framework for political, social and economic renewal. Building on work she began when she first joined the LSE in 2017 and launched a Beverage 2.0 research programme to rethink the welfare state for the 21st century. So this feels like a really important conversation to be having right now, at a time when we're asking what more we can do for each other and what we expect the state to do for us. So, Manoush, welcome.
0: Thank you so much, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: And thank you for the book, which I've really enjoyed, and we will only be scratching the surface uh, of it. Um, I actually had a role, Manoush, in writing the Labour Party Manifesto in 1997, and also the Manifesto in 2005. And I kind of know that writing books of policy proposals, it's not necessarily the most fascinating material to read. So when I picked up your book, you know, 200 pages of policy proposals, I thought, oh, this is gonna be heavy. Like, it isn't at all. Um, it's really engrossing. And each of your chapters looking at issues like health, education, intergenerational issues, you know, th- each is kind of a freestanding essay. And it's really, really powerful uh, collection of, of arguments, all based on this notion of the social contract. So the first thing I want to ask you is 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 why I mean you've been working on this since twenty seventeen, but you know you're not the only one. I've actually been approached by two or three kind of consortiums of people in the last few months, all saying, "Well, we need to have a big kind of conversation of of this phrase, beverage two It's been I'm afraid you didn't get it trademarked. People still using it. Why do you think there is this upsurge of desire for a kind of grand new settlement right now?
0: Well, I think everyone. For me, the turning point was 2016, when there was so much anger in the world, and I was really eager to try and understand where it came from. Anger manifested in the the election of Donald Trump, the Brexit debate, uh, the culture wars, the kind of growing resentments around climate change, and I think um, I think there was a sense of what. Of curiosity about what are the underlying causes of this? Where is this anger coming from? Why are so many people disappointed? And for me personally, I'd spent 25 years working in international development, and you looked at the numbers, and humans have never had it so good. We've never lived longer, been healthier, had higher incomes, our social conditions have never been better. And yet despite that, people were really disappointed in what their societies were offering them. So I think most people feel that that disjuncture between the disappointment that there is and, and the objective conditions. And so I've, I was certainly motivated uh, to, to try and understand that. I think the pandemic has compounded all of this because it revealed the fault lines in our societies even more. And at big moments like this, uh, you often get big changes, uh, what some people call critical junctures, when big shifts occur in society. And I think many people feel we're... All, we're on the cusp of such a big moment.
1: Yeah, no, it's fascinating, isn't it? The You talk in the, in the book about the contrast between what happened after the bubonic plague, where Western Europe moved away from feudalism and towards enlightenment, and Eastern Europe moved in the opposite direction into a kind of more authoritarian feudalism. You might also, I guess, contrast the outcome of World War I and World War II in terms of, uh, uh, of, of, of those kind of Uh, those moments I was very taken by a point you make at the end of the book, which I found counterintuitive, but I reflected on it, which was that you said in your experience of kind of mediation and dealing with conflict, that sometimes the way to deal with the problem is to make it bigger Mm. to add element. Now, I always tend to think, well, hang on, no, the way to solve the conflict is make it smaller, break it down into manageable bits. But this takes us to the concept of social contract. And this may be why people are all talking about the need for some new beverage is is in a sense, maybe the only way we can tackle these issues is to recognize the interconnections between them and recognize the need for a new settlement.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that point about sometimes the problem is easier to solve if you make it bigger. I I really learned that when I was doing negotiations at the World Bank and the IMF. And often the mistake was you you set aside the easy things, and then you focus down on the really most difficult, contentious issue, and then you just got stuck there. But by opening it up, and that was partly why I wrote the book the way I did, which is to look at all the stages of life, from childhood to old age, cradle to grave, as Beveridge would have said, um, that there are trade-offs there. You know, if you're going to persuade old people to work longer uh, and maybe give up some of the entitlements they thought they had, they might be willing to do that if you accompany that with some really good reforms around social care, so that they know that if they aren't able to take care of themselves there'll be insurance to look after them and if they know that their children will get a lifetime educational endowment and so combining a set of reforms together enables you to take care of different conflicting interests rather than letting one very determined group of vested interests block you reform by reform
1: and you want in the book to rehabilitate the notion of social contract. Now, of course, I, when I think of social contract, I have two reference points. One is kind of philosophical, mm. you know, back to, to Rousseau or Hobbes or whatever. Uh, and the other is more contemporary, which is the failure of the Labour government of the late 1970s with its social contract, which is kind of death of corporatism. And we we saw little bits of corporatism emerge during Covid with the kind of Treasury bringing the trade unions and businesses in tell us what you mean by social contract and why you think it's a vital a vital kind of unifying idea across your across the range of proposals that you have
0: so what i mean by the social contract is what we owe each other in society and how we organize those set of mutual obligations so for example whether children are raised at home by mothers or grandmothers or does the state provide childcare centers or paid parental leave so that both parents can can continue to work and and care for their children? Or how much healthcare is the responsibility of individuals and how much is provided collectively through public funding or insurance? And what is included in the public funding and how do we draw that line? Do we expect employers to provide contracts with regular hours and benefits, something you've written a lot about? Or do we expect workers and families to carry the risks of illness and old age? And how we draw those lines of what we owe each other really determine what kind of society that that we live in. And I guess my observation was so many of the tensions that I saw in society today are driven by the fact that our old social contract was based on a set of assumptions that are no longer relevant, that, uh, that women would all be available to take care of the young and the old for free, that most people would have a handful of employers over a career and get benefits and then only live a few years after they retire and need to be looked after for that short amount of time. That the, t- that the education we got from the age of six to 21 will be sufficient to last a lifetime. All those assumptions, as I say them, I'm sure listeners are saying, that's, that's not the world I live in. We, most women work now. Uh, most employers are, most people have many more employers over a lifetime than our parents did. Uh, most people live much, much longer. And the period of retirement has now amounts to about a third of people's lives. And so all of those changes in our society mean that our old social contract is is under huge pressure. And I would argue that that pressure is why people are so disappointed.
1: And is it partly also, Manish, that you want to recognise that what we have to say to people is not, let's just have a conversation about entitlements and what you want, but let's have a conversation about what you have to, what we have to give. I was reminded of I think another LSE alumnus, uh, R.H. Tawney, who I think Mm. said the Labour government after the war that it wasn't so much that it didn't give enough, it was that it didn't ask enough of people, that in a sense it abandoned the more reciprocal elements of the beverage settlement for example. So. Is social contract also for you because you want a kind of, you know, you want some kind of sinew to this, that it's not just about what what should you get, but also what do we have to give if we want our society to
0: flourish? Absolutely. And that notion of reciprocity, I think, is central. You know, in every society in the world, people who are, you know, able-bodied adults are expected to contribute when they're adults and be looked after when they're young and they're old. And that notion of you know, you, you have to give as well as get, I think is essential. So part of one of the big themes in the book is that, you know, we do deserve more uh, from our society. And I argue very much for a more generous social contract in terms of healthcare and reskilling and, uh, and looking after the elderly and early years interventions and investments. But I also argue that we should be expected to work longer because we live longer. Uh, and that we should be expected, uh, we should expect our employers, for example, to provide benefits to all workers regardless of the nature of their contract, uh, and that we should expect people to look after their health a bit more, and 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 if we're going to collectively carry the costs of health care, uh, kind of nudging individuals to do more to look after their health is a legitimate social expectation, and so exactly as you say, I think we need a social contract that is more generous, but more generous in terms of both what you give and what you get.
1: So one of the things that that is fascinating for me reading books at the moment is how they deal with the fact that they were written before COVID, and then they published after it or towards the end of it. And um, some people are... Simply kind of put a couple of random references to COVID at the beginning and the end of their book in order for it not to feel dated. But you you come back to it quite a few times. And so, t- to what ex- how much has COVID changed? Do you think the receptiveness for your for these kinds of ideas? You know, if this book had been published in January of 2020, being published now, what is the difference? Do you think in terms of public mood? Because I have to say that looking, for example, at the budget last week. Some of the more ambitious ideas about building back better don't seem necessarily to be coming about. It seems like a fairly kind of reductive, big tax set of solutions rather than the kind of strategic reset you're talking about. Mm, mm,
0: No, absolutely. I think, um, you know, as you said, when I I started the book before the pandemic uh, and in some ways I got to finish it because of the pandemic because of lockdown and being trapped at home. Um, and I tried to weave the pandemic throughout the book, but what I think it did really was reveal the fault lines even more. And, you know, it's not surprising who suffered the most during the pandemic. It was women, ethnic minorities, people in precarious work. They were the ones who were the most vulnerable. And so in many ways, I feel the pandemic uh, actually reinforced the analysis that there were fault lines in our society. Uh, and. It also made me more hopeful because it showed us what the state could do if it had to. Things like the furlough program, with the government paying the wages of such a huge proportion of the population, uh, or the vaccine rollout. Uh, I think it showed us how important collective action can be in moments of crisis. And I think the other thing that's very interesting, I saw a very interesting poll in twenty done in twenty four countries recently, which polled people before and after the pandemic. And what you saw was that after the pandemic, people are more afraid and they feel more let down by society. Those are the negatives. On the flip side, being deprived of human contact has made people value things like community and equality and solidarity and insurance.
1: And nature as well.
0: And nature, certainly all of us, I think, have valued being around trees a bit more. (laughs) Um, And so, I think that creates a window of opportunity for tapping into those feelings. As I said, it could go either way, but I think there is a real moment when people's expectations have shifted because of the pandemic.
1: So let's turn to a couple of the, the chapters in the book, because one of the things that you do in those chapters is you you help us to identify what you see as the mission critical areas of reform. So of course, each of your chapters could be a library of books in themselves. What you do is you say, look. These are the kind of three or four things which we absolutely have to address if we're not going to fall back. So let's start with health and, and, and your, your view of what needs to change if we're going to have a sustainable and just health system.
0: So on healthcare, uh, I obviously, as you say, one could write an encyclopedia about healthcare, but I'm focused on what what needs to change in our social contract in healthcare. And one of the biggest dilemmas in healthcare, of course, is where you draw the line as to what we take care of collectively and what is what is the responsibility of the individual? And I actually think in a UK context, we have an okay system, which says that there's a threshold and if the benefit of a particular health intervention is exceeds the cost to a certain degree, the National Health Service will fund it. And that threshold can go up over time as the society gets richer. I think one of the dilemmas in every health system is how do you ration care? Uh, Demand for healthcare is almost infinite. It rises as people get wealthier. uh, And that is the biggest dilemma for any health system. What I suggest in the the book is that, um, rationing has to occur, uh, rationing has to occur in, in a way that looks at these costs and benefits but also we need to tilt the responsibility increasingly to ask individuals to do things differently. So for example, and this is something the pandemic has taught us, digital opportunities abound in containing costs in the healthcare system. You know, for many, many years people said, oh, well, no one will ever see a doctor online on a video. Well, you know, we people have spent the last year doing that and that has uh, increased, you know, changed what is possible. It's not a substitute, it's not perfect all the time, it can't be the only mechanism. But on the other hand, digital use of doctors visits, nurses visits, using low cost devices to monitor people's heart rate and blood pressure are, are now becoming possible. So many, many things that we used to think of as requiring people to go to an institution to get healthcare are things that increasingly we'll be able to look after at home on our own. And so I think looking at that boundary of what the digital opportunities are for us to continue to deliver high quality health services, but at a more affordable way using technology, which up until now has only made costs go up. Maybe we can think about ways to contain costs to be able to continue to deliver good health care.
1: Yeah, I found that very compelling. and I, But you know this is an issue we'll come to in a few minutes, but when i look at health the the, the the intractability the difficulty of achieving change is quite remarkable so if you take you know two aspects of the nhs i mean we're about to go into another reorganization and i i fear that because we don't really think through the system properly we re we imagine that by kind of shifting things around we'll tackle these difficult issues but take two issues one is a genuine focus on outcomes. We still, broadly speaking, don't define what good outcomes are, nor do we tell the public what outcomes are achieved by different clinicians, so that that, that we don't use that kind of pressure to try and drive up performance. Mm. Well, you take another area, which is evidence-based public health interventions. You know, most public health has got a pretty weak evidence base, and we haven't really made much progress in that. So I read the chapter and I agreed with you, but. I guess the question I kept came back to is, is I've watched people try to change the health system for 20 years, and they're quite good at shuffling around the organisational structure. They're, it's much more difficult grabbing these kind of hard issues.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I worked in a lot of organisations, and the temptation to move the organogram around and think that that's going to solve problems is very high, and it rarely works. Uh, I've seen lots of organisations work with very different organograms and it, you know, that is a second order issue. I think the more important issue for thinking about the future health challenges we face are twofold, and they really reflect the experience of the pandemic in many ways. One is the wider social contract, because we know that the biggest determinant of your health is your social conditions, and has actually very little to do with the quality of the health services that you have access to. So things like the, the diseases of today are around, you know, obesity, diet, environmental exposure. It's the wider social conditions. And we saw that during the pandemic. Who who had the highest risk of mortality and dying from this pandemic? People whose social conditions were less good. So I see the wider social contract that I describe in the book as an essential way to deliver better health outcomes. And it has nothing to do with the health system or the NHS. So that's one big message I think of the book. The second big message is around prevention. And again, this is an obvious point and the pandemic has also brought this home dramatically. If you can prevent yourself from getting the virus, it's much better than getting it and then having the health system have to deal with the consequences. And everybody says, you know, prevention is worth an ounce. you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and so on and so forth. But our health systems are very poorly designed to spend sufficient resources on prevention. Uh, And the evidence is so compelling that the returns to prevention are so much greater than, uh, than trying to deal with the problems once people are ill. And I hope that the pandemic will reinforce the importance of that message
1: yeah absolutely and in many parts of the world the way the health system is funded is fee-for-service and the problem is in the fee-for-service system there aren't the incentives to reduce the amount of health care that people need let's turn to another chapter which is obviously close to my heart close to the heart of the rsa because of our work on the future work and that is the chapter on work Help us again identify what you see as being the kind of mission-critical things that we need to address in the world of work. You focus particularly on precarity, precariousness.
0: Yes. So one of the most striking things about what's happened to work uh, in recent years is that technology has made it possible for people to be employed by many employers and to have a very and we have increasing flexibility. Firms have over the last couple of decades. Uh, tried to reduce costs, pri- people have privatized, they've outsourced, they've, uh, they've created global supply chains. And all of that has meant workers are less connected to their employers. And a growing proportion of workers are employed on these so-called flexible contracts. I remember when I started working in international development, the informal sector was something we, co- we talked about in developing countries. But now a growing proportion of workers in advanced economies are in the informal sector. And of course that informality comes with flexibility, but also comes with huge amounts of insecurity. Uh, And I think that insecurity is uh, is behind a great deal of of the anxiety that many people face today. My personal view is, and, and I should also say that flexibility has brought benefits to some people. It's brought benefits to the shareholders of companies. It's brought benefits to many of us as consumers because we buy many goods much more cheaply now because the people employed in those organizations don't get benefits. Of course, for the people employed, uh, they might have jobs they might not otherwise have had, that's a benefit. But on the other hand, they live with a great deal of uncertainty. My personal view is that we should mandate firms pay benefits to workers in proportion to the amount of of time that they work for them. Uh, And mandating benefits based on, regardless of the kind of contract you have, uh, I think is appropriate. I think it's very interesting that the Supreme Court in the UK a couple of weeks ago ruled that Uber drivers are employees. I think that is the beginning, you know, that's the thin end of the wedge on this issue. It's a little more complicated for the self-employed, and we can talk about that if you like, but I do think that's the direction of travel. The other thing I'd say about work is that because employees are less attached to their employer, the responsibility for maintaining their skills has shifted onto individuals. Employers don't have enough incentives to train their workers, and I think that that's a, that's a risk. That risk of unemployment and losing your skills is something that should be shared by society. I don't think it's a, it's appropriate to leave it solely on employers because they have an incent they don't have enough incentive to do it, and I think it's too big a risk to put on individuals, and that we need more shared financing of reskilling, and countries do it. Uh, If you look at the Nordic countries, for example, uh, they have very high rates of worker turnover. Their labour markets are very flexible. People are fired all the time. In fact, they have the highest rate of worker turnover in Europe. But People know that if they lose their job, they're going to get generous unemployment insurance, they're going to get high quality training, and they will very quickly get back into another job. And that kind of labor market, I think, is much better suited to the technological changes and economic changes that we have ahead of us.
1: Yeah, and look, I don't want to be the voice of gloom in, in this conversation. But, but but again, I mean, that model of flex security, as it's called, that, that Nordic model we've known for 15 or 20 years that that looks like the one that works. But yeah, I, I you know I noticed that when the chancellor unveiled the self-employment support package last spring, he said, look, we need to look at the way in which we tax self-employment. We've had the Uber judgment, yeah. but unfortunately in the budget, not a word about that and not much sign of progress on unemployment bill. So you, you say in the chapter um, that, you know, we need to really move towards a situation where on the one hand, self-employed people and the people who employ self-employed people or the people who employ gig workers need to pay more. And on the other hand, we need to give those people some of the security and benefits which are currently only associated with full forms of employment. I completely agree. We kind of know that has to be the destination. But if anything, this government has decelerated its progress towards that in in recent years. So, um, you know, we have to, I guess we just have to keep hammering, hammering on about it. But, That will take me to a point I'll make in a moment about about where we build consent. But there's there's one thing, Manoush, there's one thing I didn't like in the book, and I'm going to tell you what it is.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I think you're too dismissive of universal basic income, and let me explain why. Okay. It's because there are very different versions of universal basic income. And so the one the RSA has advocated is really just a minimum income guarantee. And all we're saying, really, is that the disruption um, and friction and unhappiness that is caused by conditionality, which doesn't look as though it works, by the way, conditionality Mm. in the welfare system, the evidence isn't very strong on it. it. It leads people to actually probably stay in jobs longer than they should because they're terrified about getting into the grips of the welfare system. So we've argued for a very modest, absolute subsistence level universal basic income, but we believe that that is affordable. And that actually it probably will have elements of this Frex security model. It will g- lead people to be more willing to change jobs and also lead people to be willing to do things like retrain or set up a business. Now, that's a long way away from people who talk about UBI as a kind of the freedom to be lazy and, and suggest that people could all have kind of affluent lifestyle. So. I suppose what I'd say to you on UBI is that the differences between different models of UBI are bigger than the differences between people who support it and don't support it so.
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, I guess what I I guess I would like to think we could do better than UBI in the sense that I fully agree that we should have a floor below which no one could go. Um I think wage subsidies are a good example of that and you could top up people's wages so that they are able to maintain a decent standard of living Plus but a negative
1: income tax kind of notion
0: exactly a negative income tax or an earned income tax credit or something like that so that people have an incentive to keep working but um but also uh, but 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 you also target it to those who really need it so you know the thing about universal basic income is that in order to have it have a significant effect you have to tax a lot of people and, and then you have to redistribute a lot of income and it you know you have to churn a lot of resources through the state and, and if you're in a if you're in a developing country and I when I was at Diffid and at the at the World Bank and the IMF we did a lot of these cash transfer schemes where you transfer very small amounts to poor households to just you know make sure that nutrition levels are adequate and so on. And I don't think you need to target those. If you're in a very low income country where most people are poor. It's just efficient to give it to everyone. Um, but in a developed country like the UK, I think we have mechanisms for targeting there. You know, there are problems with it, but we can, we can focus it. I think the other thing I would do also is that I think giving everyone a, an, an educational endowment mm. uh, that they could have for life, for reskilling. Um, is also better than universal basic income because it maintains the skills and productivity of the workforce. I guess underpinning what I'm saying is is perhaps a value judgment, and it goes back to where we started on reciprocity, that if you can work, you should contribute to society. And work is, is probably the most important way in which we contribute to the social contract. And so I'd like to try and preserve that for people who can work.
1: Yeah. Oh, look, I'd love to carry on debating this with you. Some other time, Anush, some other time. But two things that you don't talk about, well, you do talk about them in the book, but you don't talk about them as chapters. And I'm kind of interested in in, in why not. So the first is place. Mm. Now, obviously, this is a book with a global span, and maybe we're particularly obsessed by place in the UK because of the size of our regional disparities and the sense that there are so many places that feel kind of left behind. But of course... The government has made levelling up its big economic uh, idea. Did you think about place as something you'd look at? Or, 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 or is it just that, it, is that a particularly British obsession, do you think?
0: No, place is really hard. I mean, I'll be very candid with you. Uh, and I've seen many, many, many attempts around the world to try and invest in regions that are not doing well to try and catch up. And I've, I have to confess, I've seen more failure than success. Um, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about that. One is um, infrastructure is the answer. I think infrastructure is so important, uh, but it's only one dimension uh, of, of leveling up. I think the other piece is a lot around things like early childhood education, the quality of uh, of social spending in those areas. I think my if you really pressed me on place, I'm increasingly coming to the view uh, that it has to be linked to decentralization of political power. Mm. I don't think it's a coincidence that in the UK, you have incredibly high regional disparity and one of the most centralized states in the world. And so I think empowering local people to be able to have their own revenues and figure out their own strategies to deal with their local problems is probably is probably the best solution i can come up with yeah well and a lot of the infrastructure is not big a lot of it is small a lot of it is around road maintenance and school repair and local you know local youth centers or whatever it is and 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 the, the advantage of of taking a more decentralized approach is that you get innovation locally and localities compete with each other and they learn from each other for me, I think that's the most promising strategy.
1: Yeah, well, and I think the evidence supports you. And um, indeed, if anybody's interested in this issue of place, there's some splendid work done by uh, the Industrial Strategy Council, which looked at places that have turned around, like Lille in France, and or Estonia. Estonia is an amazing story. That's a small place, you know, and it's amazing story of of success. Parts of Germany, uh, American parts of America as well but it is a long-term and it's complex and it absolutely reinforces your point, Manush, that you need to really devolve power. Um, So if people are interested in in how hard this place agenda is, look at those things on the Industrial Strategy Council website, but you need to do it soon because we were abolished last week. Uh, Now, um, moving on to change, um, you don't also talk about democracy per se, you do talk about it and particularly towards the end of the book.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But I guess for me, when I look at arguments that you make, which are fascinating, but as you yourself say, in many cases, they're pretty obvious. You know, they're pretty clear cut what needs to happen. Um, And you don't see it happening. It feels as though it's because politicians lack the courage, they lack the legitimacy to do things which take time, and where there are some losers as well as some winners. And like any innovation, you might go through a dip before you move into a a better situation. Mm. And that's why I've become a big fan of deliberative democracy. And, you know, you're very interested in stuff all around the world, and you must have noticed that this is a kind of mega trend, the growth of deliberative forms as governments seek to engage citizens and win greater legitimacy. It feels to me as though we won't be able to do any of the things you argue for unless we can revive our democracies, because I think our representative democratic process Whilst in the end, that's ultimately what kind of underwrites the system, it's simply insufficient to provide politicians with the kind of legitimacy they need to grasp the the nettles that you describe.
0: Yeah. Well, there's definitely a link between the nature of the political system and the kind of social contract you get. So it's not surprising that more inclusive political systems deliver better social contracts. And there's loads of evidence to support that. Countries that are run by a small clique or an authoritarian leader... Uh, don't tend to have very good social outcomes, not surprisingly. There's also a a link to the nature of the system. So, for example, presidential winner-takes-all political systems tend to have less generous social contracts, whereas if you have proportional representation, because you have to have coalitions and bring in lots of different groups, you need to have a more inclusive social settlement. Um, So there is a link to politics. And you know, ultimately social contracts get delivered where politicians are accountable to their citizens. And so strengthening those institutions of accountability uh, are key. I too am a fan of deliberative democracy. I think especially at a time when people are disengaged from politics And if people feel that those deliberations actually have an impact on policy, it's really uh, impressive. It's also a really good way to deal with contentious political issues. I I thought the way that Ireland dealt with the abortion debate, for example, and having a whole year where you had citizens assemblies discussing the issues uh, prior to holding the referendum uh, meant that a really controversial issue could be debated and voted on in a peaceful way because people have felt that they had had a chance to be heard and were forced to listen to the views of people who have very different views. So I think it's a great model. I think it's one that we need to use more. I think the other thing that we need to look more at is digital democracy and allowing people to vote online. Um, I think it will be key for getting more young people to vote, uh, and that's another one of my preoccupations: is that our our social contract is uh, is shortchanging younger generations, and they suffer because they they don't show up to vote, and we need to make that easier for them. Uh, so all of these ways that you're that we're discussing to increase accountability are are the underpinning for a better social contract.
1: Yeah, and. You know, as someone who's been banging on about this for a long time, I kind of know what the problems are. So one obvious problem is that politics is competitive, and exactly as you say, Malush, particularly in winner-takes-all systems like in Britain and America, people are all for reform until they win.
0: Yeah, exactly. And Then they go,
1: well, hang on, uh, these rules can't be that bad. I, I've just—it's yeah. like VAR in football. You hate it until you, you know, until until it's your team that benefits from it. So Definitely. one problem is that politicians is that they care more about winning the system than the health of the system right another problem i'm afraid with this and i know this was spent last year working with various people trying to get broadcasters interested is that broadcasters find democratic reform dull they're gonna kind of, they kind going they do not want to talk about it so actually it's absolutely vital and in the united kingdom we have a system that's completely falling it's falling over i mean England is the only part of the United Kingdom that doesn't have fair votes, for example. I mean, what's going on there? You know, they have fair votes in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Just in England, do we have this archaic first-past-the-post system? We don't have a written constitution. So the only way to save the United Kingdom is to have a kind of federal solution. You can't have a federalist system without a written constitution determining where the powers lie. But no, no, we want to kind of, you know, we want to kind of stumble on with our system based on, you know, history. So... A lot needs to be done. And that takes me to my final question, Manish, which is this. The way the LSE has changed the world in the past is by having people from the LSE who then go into government. So the old model is you have your people, they are like you, they have huge brains, and then they go into government and they write great reports, you know, the poor law reports of the, of the webs or beverage or whatever. Now that model's broken. That model of clever people writing reports and a deferential population putting it in, and a, and a responsible, consensual elite putting the public interest first. I'm afraid all that's gone. Mm. We have to have a different model of change. And I'm interested. What do you? You're someone who's been a change maker all your life. How do you think you can use the LSE not just to have great ideas, but to actually be an agent of change? Given how stuck we are and given that, unfortunately, even brilliant books like yours aren't going to shift the dial unless we can think about change differently.
0: Yeah. So a couple of answers to that. I mean, one, uh, you know, my book is, I hope, a modest contribution to to providing solutions. I was very keen to write a book that wasn't about admiring the problem again. Uh, And so, as you say, it's, you know, in each area, I've got very specific solutions which have worked in other countries. Uh, so I hope that's one dimension. The other thing is it's not just me. There, I have, you know, a thousand talented uh, academics at the LSE. And we've it is part of a wider research program, and many people are working on many aspects of it, including things like leveling up and so on and so forth. Um the other thing is uh is I think. One of the things the LSE has always done, but now we can do it even more, is provide a forum for debates globally. Uh, you know, we have, I think, probably the best public events program in the world, which looks a little bit like deliberative democracy in the sense that you know we bring people from all over the world to discuss big issues. But of course, with the pandemic, we've been able to do this online and get literally thousands and thousands of people from all over the world discussing issues like climate change, like inequality, like the future of healthcare and so on. So we will continue to do that and do that in spades. Um, I think, um, you know, I think the other thing I'd say is that when you read the history, even Beveridge, when he wrote his report in 1942, uh, you know, he was sort of asked to do this to keep him busy because they wanted to sort of get him off something else. Uh, And he wrote it and and then he made a nuisance of himself uh, and he didn't let the ideas die. And and I think think that's also part of the answer is is to be persistent. And what I've seen in most countries is that there are windows of political opportunity that open up when reforms happen. And I've been in government when those moments happen. And what usually happens is something must be done. And then you scramble around to find out what good ideas are available now, and you cobble together a reform program. And so I think the key is to keep those good ideas alive and in the public domain and being debated. And so as political opportunities and windows of opportunity open up, they're there and you're ready to kind of leap through the window and and, and achieve real change.
1: Yeah, you you forgot to say Manish when you said the LSE has got the world's leading public events program. You meant to, of course, say only rivals by the RSA, <laughs> but it's fine. I mean, I, you know, you, your head's full of your new book. You it's, it's easy to forget these things. <laughs> Can I also say that that you know, when it comes to causing trouble and being an irritant and pushing at the system, you know, the RSA we're just down the road from you at the LSE. So let's. Let's work together because we need a strategy for change as well as having great ideas. Um, um, And I do think you're right that people are ready for change. But this this moment, this kind of moment to want to do things differently won't last forever, so we need to try and grasp it. Well, you know, we could continue this discussion all afternoon, but I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I really strongly recommend that you read What We Owe Each Other. You'll find the link to the book in the chat bar and on the RSA website. The RSA's Living Change Campaign, I've been talking a lot about change, is running throughout March and April. So do check our website and social media channels to find out what's in store in the weeks ahead and how you can get involved. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on how this extraordinary last year has shaped your view of what we owe each other, what we might need and want from a new social contract. So please do share your ideas using the hashtag RSAChange. Thank you again, Manoush, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Matthew, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.